Hello and welcome to The Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. be without Charles Dickens, loved the world over for creating some of literature's most memorable characters, from Ebenezer Scrooge to Miss Havisham, he was also renowned for his razor-sharp social commentary and for advocating for the poor when they didn't have a voice of their own. This year, Vintage Classics has published a new collection of six of his best-loved books, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, Hard Times, A Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations and A Christmas Carol. Here with me to talk about the great man, who was not without his faults for all his brilliance, are the biographer and academic Robert Douglas Fairhurst and short story writer Helen Simpson. Robert is an award-winning biographer and fellow at Magdalen College, Oxford, and his most recent book is The Story of Alice. Before that, he wrote Becoming Dickens, the invention of a novelist which won the Duff Cooper Prize. Helen is the author of six short story collections, including Four Bare Legs, In a Bed, Constitutional and Hey Yeah Right, Get a Life. In 2011, Helen wrote a short story for The Times called The Chimes, about a book club dissecting Dickens's novel The Chimes. We're going to hear a little bit from that now, and if you want to read the story in its entirety, it's published in Helen's collection, Cockfosters. I look around me at work and I see some very average people who've made a great deal of money over the last 20 years, said Rashmi, blowing her nose. Rashmi works in the city. Second homes are the norm. I've got a flat in Mumbai, so I shouldn't talk. But there are people with third homes, strings of rental properties, and they're nothing special in the way of ability or talent. We've lived through a time when it was perfectly possible to go from mediocre to millionaire, as long as you had some energy and luck and an eye to the main chance. Well, at least this lot didn't, today didn't inherit it, said Estella. Not all of them, anyway. True, said Rashmi. My boss's mother was a dinner lady. And that ought to make it better, said Nancy, who's a teacher. But somehow it doesn't. Once someone gets rich, it seems they immediately forget what it was like to be not rich. They just morph into money without a backward glance. Of course, the city always did do itself well, said Rashmi. But over the last couple of decades, it's quite obvious that it massively over-rewarded itself. Not half you haven't, said Estella, you artful dodgers, you. She's a journalist. But then, since the turn of the century, millions and millions of people have grown richer all over the world, said Rashmi, particularly in India and China. The world's wealth has almost doubled. How, said Dora, GP, how can the money in the world increase itself? Surely there's a finite amount. It doesn't make sense. Oh, it must be to do with the dicing and splicing and subpriming we keep hearing about, said Nancy. I know, said Dora. I try and follow it on the news, but honestly, it's beyond me. What I think fumed, Nancy, is that never again can we afford to be so ignorant. We've allowed a pack of shameless greed merchants and a few brainiacs with mass PhDs to rig the entire system over the last 20 years so that nobody can understand it. We must lobby for basic economics to be a compulsory part of the national curriculum from now on. I'm not sure how much good that would do, said Estella. Even if we get the hang of what a hedge fund is, what securitisation means, so what? It's all got so complicated, apparently, that nobody in banking really understands it either. The only thing that's clear is they're protected from their own mistakes. A muggins pays, says Dora. That's us. What would Dickens say, said Nancy? If he had any sense, said Rashmi, he'd point out that the average Brit may be feeling the pinch just now, that they're still ten times richer than the average Chinese. 
and he probably set his next Christmas story in Shenzhen or Dongguan in a toy factory. He'd tell the story of a factory worker who lives 12 hours from where her small children are cared for by her parents while she works for a pittance and sleeps in a comfortless dormitory and only sees them once a year. Once a year, said Dora, that's not true, is it? That Chinese New Year, said Rashmi. Imagine those few days. Would it help if we didn't buy the toys, asked Nancy. Not really, said Rashmi. It's hard to beat a global system. There are people a lot worse off than our factory worker. And anyway, she'd probably rather have the life she's got now than the one her mother's had. She's already richer than her parents ever were. Robert, Helen, welcome. We're going to talk about Dickens at this very, very Dickensy time of year. As you were pointing out when we were chatting earlier, Robert, we do associate Christmas with Dickens. Now, obviously, A Christmas Carol is one reason. Is that the only reason? No, it's not. Um, Dickens was kind of obsessed with Christmas, um, and that's partly because it is, it is something he associated with his own childhood. Uh, but Happily. Um, um, well, both happily and unhappily. So uh, his son uh, remembered that when Dickens celebrated Christmas, he was, he said, bright and jolly as a boy, so, you know, dancing and playing games and doing conjuring tricks like creating uh, kind of magical plum puddings, um, bringing them steaming out of hats, that kind of thing. But the key thing, I suppose, is that he was as bright and jolly as a boy. Um, in other words, mm. it was a way in which he could um, recover a kind of childlike innocence and wonder uh, but also, I suppose, um, remember how his own child had been so miserable. And therefore, almost every time Dickens writes about Christmas, it's also a time of vulnerability and danger. You think about Pip on the marshes meeting Magwitch, that's on Christmas Day. You think about... <gasps> really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, that just hasn't sort of lodged itself in my mind. I, that encounter is so well known, and yet... It's Christmas. You kind of forget that. And, 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 it's, and the reason that he brings um, the food uh, for Magwitch is that he is being you know, fed sort of you know, scraps himself. Uh, and it's a way in which he can show the real meaning of Christmas, which is to exercise generosity mm. and compassion mm. and tolerance for people less fortunate than himself. And that's why he takes that large slice of pie, because there was a pie because it was Christmas, I suppose. It, 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 yes, exactly. Like um, but, but it stretches across Dickens' whole career. So the last thing that he writes uh, but doesn't finish is uh, The Mystery of Edwin mm. Drood. Uh, and the murder takes place on Christmas. Um, so it's as if Dickens wanted to take everything that, re that Christmas represented, which was um, you know, pleasure and family and security, and then put it at risk. Mm. Which I guess is what you might say he does in every setting throughout all his books. Helen, if we could just talk for a second about your story, The Chimes, which is a very, very modern setting, uh, a, a setting that we've become used to seeing in, in kind of popular culture, a reading group, and this is what the reading group are reading, isn't it? Well, they're reading this as well. It was their December meeting, mm. but they didn't want to read The Christmas Carol because one of them's a teacher and she's already taught it umpteen years to year she's 10 sick of because it. It, she's absolutely <laughs> sick of Marley's door knocker and um, <laughs> it, it's a short book which is why year 10s often get taught it because mm -hmm. they get to the end of it um, but the chimes they're not sure about once they when they meet they've all read it and she apologizes oh it was a bit of a um, you know it was a long sprawling thing um, but it's actually more revolutionary. Um, it's got prostitution and alcoholism in it, and it's got. That's a... what it is. It's it's 
it's very strange. It's, it's set on New Year's Day, actually, isn't it, Robert? It's um, the the chimes of the bells with goblins on them, I think. That's right. That's, that, that's right. And it's one of a number of stories that Dickens wrote after the success of A Christmas Carol. It was the one the year after he wrote, wasn't it, that, that one? That's right. And, well, and what were the others? There were um, uh, well, Cricket he, on the Harp. Yeah, there's Cricket on the Harp. I mean, he... It's, it's difficult to list them because he wrote so many, yeah. um, and increasingly he involved other writers um, in them as well. Mm. So um, it became what he called um, uh, the Christmas Stone, cle cle clearing the Christmas Stone out of the road, he said, because it became this fixture in the publishing calendar. Um, and other writers then started to compete with him as well. That's right, though, when we go back to A Christmas Carol, isn't it? That, you know, we remember it in some ways a heartwarming story, but it's mm. such a painful and sad story. I was talking uh, just recently to Ali Smith about her new book, Winter, which begins with that idea of death, death throughout the world, everything being dead, the absolute sort of midnight of the world. Um, and then that idea that things do... the the world slowly reorients itself, turns on the axis, and light comes back in. But in A Christmas Carol, there's a lot that you go through before you get to that point, isn't there? That's right. So he gives us a happy ending, but before that he reminds us how vulnerable the happy ending mm. is because Tiny Tim does not die, but of course in the story he does die as well before Scrooge repents mm. and then rewrites the future. Um, so it's one of Dickens's attempts to show just how um, careful you have to be to stop things turning out for the worst mm -hmm. and to make sure they do turn out for the best. And what, what I suppose is interesting about the story then is that um, it, it did a lot of good. It's not just it was a good story. It was a story that did good. In other words, the readers learnt the lesson about the importance of compassion and generosity. So there's a lovely story about um, a, a factory owner in Boston who goes to a Christmas Eve reading of A Christmas Carol. Um, and he is so kind of touched by it that he immediately closes the factory on Christmas Day and buys all his workers a turkey. You know, it, it's it, it's mm. that it's that kind of thing that the story. Carlyle, I read Carlyle once he went to a reading. He, he, he improvises dinner Scottish parties. Scottish Puritan, and he, he orders a turkey for the first time ever, and has dinner people around for dinner. Yeah, e exactly, <laughs> exactly. Of course, I'm drawn to the story in Boston because the factory owner was called Mr. Fairbanks. But <laughs> <laughs> do we think, if we just for a second thought, uh, whether there is any writer who you could say was sort of analogous to that now, whose works might actually effect change they might be distributed and understood and enjoyed so widely i'm not sure of the answer to that i mean the the, the popular answer is always that's what tv does now isn't it so mm. it would be something like the eastenders christmas special uh, or it would be i'm uh, not sure how much good that's ever done <laughs> to be honest Morecambe wise <laughs> <laughs> well victoria would perhaps victoria would. as as uh, as we used to watch um, but it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he, it's, it comes back again to something that, that Ali Smith was talking about. Dickens was perhaps par excellence the writer who believed that the novel should exist in the world. It should talk to the world that it was immediately launched into. Do you think that's why he seems so relevant to us now, even though the world has moved on? That sense of connection is still there. I think so. Um, I mean... What was interesting about his own life is that um, from A Christmas Carol onwards, he was associated with the values of Christmas. Mm. So when he dies in 1870, uh, there's a famous story about a, uh, a, a kind of costermonger, a, a flower girl near Covent Garden saying, Dickens dead, then will Father Christmas die too? 
as if they were equally yes. important and almost equally legendary yes. figures. But I, I was struck when I um, was reading about him, and, and the women in this story talk about it, this, you know, family and warmth being the main value and so on. But, and he had ten children with Catherine. And, but then, then, of course, this is Christmas comes when he casts Catherine out of the family house. And, and he just says, um, no, and he writes letters to the papers and says she doesn't get on with the children. Um, she's an evil sort of, you know, poisonous woman and we're, she's going to live separately. And she, she's, and he, he's So she's meanwhile, publicly humiliated. She's publicly humiliated. And cast these, out. With these ten children and they're told not to talk to her. And meanwhile, he's actually, he, he's um, having a sort of affair with Ellen Turner, who's... Mm. Um, but that's got to be terribly secret. And it's, it's a sort of hysteria, really, because he's this paragon of you know, ma- morality and warmth and family virtue. And, and then this happens. And in fact, his, one thing, the one quotation I brought, I'd like, was um, his daughter, Katie. After he died, she wrote to Bernard Shaw about his death. If you could make the public understand that my father was not a joyous, jocose gentleman walking about the world with a plum pudding and a bowl of punch, you would greatly oblige me. But even in 1843, <laughs> even many years before that, um, when he's planning a Christmas carol, um, he needs a success because Martin Chuzzlewood, which is another fable about selfishness, you know, the sales of that are flagging. But also Catherine is pregnant with another baby. Mm. He describes her in one letter as a donkey. Mm. Uh, he has dreams, he says, about uh, a baby skewered on a toasting fork. Ooh. You know, the, 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 these are not the uh, the dreams of they someone who's looking not. forward to a, you know, another um, mouth to feed. Well, it's very sort of um, bipolar, isn't it? I mean, the, the more you go for one, the bigger the front, the bigger the back, as they say. You know, he's, mm. he is Christmas incarnate, but behind it, he's actually probably going bar humbug. Like, but surely yeah. he couldn't have written a, a Christmas carol without being able to access that part that was Scrooge, that was saying, I don't want this, I don't care, I'm turning my face away from the world. And and of course, the the most important scene probably is where Scrooge goes back to his childhood, where he is alone uh, and he is reading. And that's important, I think, as a little detail, because Scrooge is in some ways a a horrible, perverse self-parody of Dickens. This is Dickens realising that his own need for money his own needs to be alone, to write. Solitary is an oyster, Scrooge is, isn't he? Exactly. Um, And the need for money, yes. When he was in the blacking factory, when he was 12, making these seven little piles of the coins he was given, so Mm. he'd have one for each, you know, sort of passing them out between the days of the week. That that obviously bit deep. Uh, Do you think we can see this in in some of the other books that we were going to chat about a bit today, these these, uh, new editions of Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, Hard Times, Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations. I mean, certainly you look at that and you think, well, throughout them there are these solitary figures, often children. I mean, it's not hard to sort of draw that parallel. Um, But he was so interested in the person alone, trying to get somewhere, wasn't he? Mm, Absolutely. He was a self-made man uh, who was deeply suspicious of people who claimed to be self-made men. People like Bounderby uh, in Hard Times. Mm. Again, it's something like a self-parody. That when Dickens was writing, he would, his daughter said, go to the mirror and he would make these strange faces um, uh, in the mirror uh, and he would become the characters that he then would go and write down as if he was drawing them out of himself. So in some ways, they are all 
aspects of Dickens, that what you, you see when you're reading one of his novels is this great squabble, this great internal debate between different bits of himself. It's a sort of psychodrama monologue. Yeah. Or, or, or a, a monopolylog, which was the Mono, posh yeah. word at the time. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> That's they, a real word. word. Uh, Monopolog. So there, there was a, um, a uh, an actor um, who he used to go and <laughs> see, uh, who used to perform these um, these dramas, these one man dramas, in which he would take on every role himself, uh, and he would you know, swap hats and swap voices. Uh, but they were all Charles Matthews. Uh, the one actor uh, and Dickens used to go and see him a lot and you can see that yes, in some ways yes. he's, he's doing that and he is a performer isn't he, he I is mean this business of having readings in white gloves and a red carnation was it or yeah always uh, had a red flower and white gloves and A Christmas and Carol 127 times he performs that yes that, so, was, that was, his, was that his main that was his real party piece that, that, that's right that, that and the yeah. death of um, the death, death of, of Nancy now. oh no of Nancy, yeah, Sykes, Sykes murdering Nancy. Uh, which, oh yes, of course. Oh. Which, which he comes back to again and again and again, playing both parts again, both the victim and also the aggressor, because he saw himself as both the victim and the aggressor in everything he wrote. Were you both aware mm. of Dickens as small children, or when when did he first sort of come into your life? I imagine with you, Robert, it must have been years ago. You've written about him for so much of your life, but Helen, what about what about you? Well, yes, I. I I put that into the story as well, because he was um, a bit of a hero of lower middle class, you know, people who didn't have many books, but they would have Dickens. Yes. Because the, me- yeah. the reason, you know, he wasn't a snob. That was, um, they were characters from all classes, and they were all given equal value, really. Mm. Yes, but and you, fact, that's a, it's surely in great sort of contrast to somebody like, I suppose, George Eliot, where, you know, there may be working-class characters making making kind of odd forays, but, but essentially it's, a, it's, yeah, it's, but it's mm. drama, isn't it? It's the drama of middle-class families. Yeah. And I spent several years in a house, uh, a new build but faux-Georgian uh, street of houses that was called Dickens Drive, um, <laughs> which which shows you just Is that how why you ended up writing about <laughs> it? It's pure, it's pure cause and effect, exactly. <laughs> um, but... but it, and it shows that he has somehow entered the culture in a way that many writers don't. Um, so phrases like bar humbug, um, uh, but also the characters themselves. Mr. McCorber. Mr. McCorber. Please, um, sir, can I have some more? Yeah. Exactly. And Virginia Woolf said that A Christmas Carol was one of those stories that we know even before we know how to read. Uh, and it's true. You, you can't escape it, partly because of the catchphrases and the characters, and partly because it's one of those stories, like a lot of his stories, that become a kind of secular ritual. That well, you... children now, it's one of those plays at, at school, a musical, Oliver. They do the musical Oliver, don't they? They, they still do that. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and what are they being dark. told by that story? It's such an interesting story, isn't it? You've got clear sort of, you know, child abuse, effectively. You've got children treated absolutely horribly. Yes. The promise of escape, and then also the promise of the freedom of criminality. The promise that actually you can, if you're Oliver, get out and meet this much more <laughs> lovable sort of band of friends who are going to look after you more, but they are criminals. But also the, uh, the rich and the poor. The rich ought yeah. to care about the condition of the yes. poor. There ought yes. to be some... And that, when I was looking at the date um, of uh, Christmas Carol, and those Christmas stories, they're 1843, 1843 is when Christmas Carol is published, yes. It's so strange, because then there's 1848, is the great revolutionary year in Europe, um, but 1845 is both Marx and Engels produced their great works. 
and I just just seen that play at the bridge, you know, about Marx and Engels and thought, mm. of course, it's it's it, you know, it's all that poverty on London streets. Because Dickens went on writing long after, obviously. So, but by the time the drains were cleared up by, is it Basil Gett? And um, that's 1860s, isn't it? That's right. That's right. But I mean, I mean, Dickens was brilliant at tapping the zeitgeist and then making yeah. it his own. So that's why we think about the words Victorian and Dickensian as almost synonyms mm. uh, yes. for each other. Um, and uh, when it comes to works like A Christmas Carol, um, you can see that happening. So the reason it's called A Christmas Carol is probably because 10 years earlier, the first big successful collection of Christmas carols had just been published, which includes God You Rest You Merry Gentlemen, mm. which of course is the carol which the little boy sings through Scrooge's keyhole. Mm. Um, 1843, the year that it's published, is also the year of the first Christmas card. Um, and it was a Christmas card that showed scenes of charitable giving. Oh. So not the usual pictures there of flowers and so on. It is, it is this business of charitable giving. It's the anxiety about the rich and the poor. There is this great divide, and they're actually sort of really bothering him, and he's dealing with it. But I realised again, of course, the French Revolution was only sort of under 50 years before that. So no one. So while he's, he's wanting to be revolutionary, you keep seeing these people sort of rising up, but they, in the end... They're not going to, they're not going to shoot someone or or stab or kill to get the money. They're they're, they're going to settle into family again. Yes, and as, yeah. as, as as he says or as he asks in uh, Bleak House, what connection can there be between the very very rich and the very very poor? And mm. in that novel, it turns out that we are intimately linked by ties of blood and disease and money and all the other things that mm. circulate. Um, but of course right from the start of his career he's fascinated by this idea that we are other people even the word scrooge comes from an early uh, uh, kind of slang word in um, uh, that was popular in london it's in johnson's dictionary that means to push against someone to invade their personal space this, mm. th th this idea that we we sort of Tread on you mean it's a verb? Head. We'd Scrooge into their lives or uh, something like that? It, it is. It's, 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 it's to push against someone, to squeeze them, to invade their personal space. It's in, it's in Johnson's Dictionary. So how much is what you're describing there, what you're both describing, um, these contradictions in his work or preoccupations, fairly straightforwardly to do with his own social dislocation, the fact that he did change class, his fortunes changed. He obviously had the anxiety throughout this life that he wouldn't go back. Um, but he had a kind of social conscience as well, so it wasn't a straightforward matter of sort of abandoning the class that he came from. Well, the short answer is yes. I think that's right, that in some ways uh, he saw writing as a form of self-therapy that also then could act as therapy for the wider social and political body. Now, that's not to say that he saw that in a conscious way. It might have been an unconscious need, but at the same time... The fact that his writing was aimed, it was pitched at different levels of society, that it was successful at many different levels, means that his writing was trying to heal those divisions that it was actually about. Although, having, yes, having said he's not revolutionary, he also did, you know, he, he was so shocked by child labour, for instance, so by dramatising that and showing it in a book, he, he, he had direct um, influence on the law. Shall we just conclude by thinking about our favourite bits of Dickens or our favourite books? Do we have them? I'm putting you on the spot a little, I know. I'm afraid mine's very, very obvious, but and it is seasonal, but um, I did a 
a reading. I did Dickens's reading of A Christmas Carol at a bookshop a few years ago. Mm. And I thought I was, you know, a hard-bitten performer. I thought that it wouldn't, wouldn't affect me, wouldn't touch me at all. And I got to the scene of Bob Cratchit entering his house and Tiny Tim's little crutch is leaning against the wall. Um, and they are mourning the fact that he is no longer there. And I broke down. <laughs> I broke down in front of the audience. And I was both um, appalled at myself and actually secretly pleased because I thought, the old boy still got it. <laughs> the old boy, can, <laughs> he, can, he can still do it, even if you know what's going to happen. Did you think to yourself, you. what would Dickens do in this situation? What did you do? He would have enjoyed, luxuriated in the tears. And he would mm. have staggered on, as I did. So I felt that I was not only reading Dickens, I was being But also you were challenging, challenging, <laughs> challenging. No, sorry, you were channeling him. I was channeling him, exactly. I was being Dickens. Then, is, I mean, I, I may resent the idea of it being sentimental or whatever, but actually, every time I reread it, it's, it's a great book. Well, he does, he does and, bring us back to that idea of yeah. why do we only think of sentimentality, sentimentalism as a sort of pejorative. But also, it's not that sent. I mean, bits of it are so hard. We uh, yes, uh, you sort yeah, of remember yeah. the sentimental bits. God blesses everyone, and so on. But yeah. th there are lines in it which are genuinely really shocking. When, when he, when he, you know, the people come collecting for charity, and he's and, uh, and says, "What will happen if they don't get any money?" And the people say, "Oh, well, they'll die." He said, "Well, let them die and decrease the surplus population." Well, that's a shocking line. That's sort of Malthus made. You know. Oof. Um, so that's that's it's tough stuff. A lot of for Christmas Carol. Yeah. And, and, and the you remember the scene where the ghosts are whirling around outside, mm. uh, and Scrooge learns it's because they've lost the power to influence things for good, uh, as oh. of course Scrooge himself he discovers has not lost that power. But mm. what's extraordinary is th um, the number of people who who celebrate Dickens, who celebrate a Dickensian Christmas, which is full of crackling log fires and rosy-cheeked urchins and people playing snowballs and so on, and then step over beggars. Mm. And you think, these are people who do not understand what Dickens is trying to do. Mm. He is trying to not mould people's hearts, uh, but to remind them they've got hearts. Isn't that a problem that we could just immediately see now, though? I mean, do we really think that has changed so very much? And what you were talking about earlier, the way that TV occupies that part in our sort of national consciousness, that you know, something that we watch together, uh, that we might do exactly that, that we might be able to flip over from the news and... I think that's exactly the problem. Um, but I suppose what has changed is that Dickens has now become... He's acquired this patina... Uh, of age, which means that he is now like a box of Quality Street, or he is like uh, a snow globe. Mm. He's something which has that, that sense of uh, being very, very pretty, but somehow distant uh, from us. Um, whereas at the time, it was urgent and it was necessary. And I think we need to recover that. Thank you so much, both of you. And that's it for our foray back in time to Dickens's world. Thank you to our guests Helen Simpson and Robert Douglas Fairhurst. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy the Vintage Podcast, why not rate and review us on whatever platform you listen on and help us to reach more book lovers.